0: Just to note, as we begin, I have the privilege of preaching four sermons. And if you look at chapter two, you would think that it would break out into three sections. But I'm doing four sermons and just not to disappoint you in advance for this sermon. But my favorite passage of chapter two is actually going to be the evening sermon next Sunday. So do come back tonight, but really mark your calendars in my mind for the uh, a, a week from today in the evening, but enough prolegomenon for me. Here's Ecclesiastes chapter two, verses one to eleven. I said in my heart, "Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself." But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, "It is mad," and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks And many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Well, may the Lord bless the reading and the exposition of his holy word. Now, I don't know about you, but if I am going somewhere, I always like to decide as before I roll out what to listen to. And sometimes if I rather unreflectively start playing something, then I will in- inevitably enjoy it and won't even reflect on it. But if I tell myself I must find the perfect driving song for my destination, for the season, for my mood, then I flit from one song to the next. If I want to listen to someone speaking, then I, I move from, well, maybe I'll listen to this podcast. No, no, I should edify myself with this audiobook. And invariably, I move from one thing to another. That is a problem of pleasure. We can become paralyzed with choices. We can also become paralyzed when we have competing considerations. Let's go to lunch, you say. I think Wright's barbecue. But then I consider my waistline, and I think, well, maybe a salad would do. Then I think E. coli. So whatever we do, we have all of these paralyzing, competing choices. There is a problem of pleasure. We see this in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I want to consider this problem of pleasure under three headings. First, bodily pleasures. We see this in verses 1 to 3. Then bold pursuits in verses 4 to 8. And then bold projects, sorry, in verses 4 to 8. And then finally, barren pursuits and the remaining verses in the passage before us. Well, first, bodily pleasures. Solomon considers first the individual pleasures that we can have with life. Verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But even as he pursues these pleasures, he realizes that pleasures, in order to be pleasurable, need to be circumscribed within certain limits. So we can laugh, verse 2, but we all know how laughter can be madness or folly, hopefully you regularly forget that I'm a philosophy professor, but I have to indulge myself by telling you that one of the things that's interesting about Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics is he says that the good life includes virtues, which is not surprising, but he includes amongst the virtues some things that we would think of as being strange for a moral philosopher to reflect on. But one of the things Aristotle says that's necessary or it's important for the good life is quick-wittedness. We want people, people who flourish in life Are able to tell the right kind of joke at the right time in the right way. But Solomon realizes that sometimes it's all just madness and folly. How we love to laugh at the sharp, delightful turn of phrase. But we've all been, we've all said things, if you're me, that were the wrong thing to say. We were lighthearted when we should have been somber, right? It's fine to tell an appropriate joke at a wedding. But a, uh, you know, a coarse joke at a funeral is perhaps the most offensive thing that we could think of, right? So the problem of pleasure is that laughter is great, but it can also be madness. It can be folly. So, too, there are the pleasures of food and drink. And we see this in verse 3. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom wine can be cheering and yet we need wisdom because too much wine can cause great misery indeed we must take hold of folly or folly will take hold of us we must control control and oversee The ways that we have pleasure or our pleasure will overrun and destroy us. Now, it gets worse because even when we have the nice steak in the glass of wine while listening to a fun and humorous person talk and causing laughter that doesn't uh, fall off into madness... It's still fleeting. It's still fleeting. The best of individual bodily pleasure does not last forever. Verse 1. It too is vanity. But behold, this also was vanity. All too quickly, the best pleasures in life leave us. And that's if we get to enjoy them. In 1985 there was a bottle of wine that was discovered in a cellar in Paris, a 1787 Chateau Margaux. And uh, so, you know, Gonclus, Bordeaux. And on this bottle of wine was written T.H. period, J. period. There was speculation that the man who would become... The third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, that it was his bottle of wine. Everyone knows that Jefferson loved wine, and he had been the minister to France from 1785 to 1789. And so here was a bottle of wine from 1787 discovered in a Paris cellar in 1985 that had T.H. period J on it, 1985. Fast forward to April 23rd, 1989, the Four Seasons in New York. William Sokolin was a uh, prominent wine merchant. He was the son of a wine merchant. The Sokolins, I think, had um, liquor license number three or four after Prohibition in New York. And he was looking to sell a 1787 Chateau Margot. And uh, it was, for today's dollar, because of inflation, it was a million dollar bottle of wine. And so he had a million dollar bottle of wine, April 23rd, 1989, at the Four Seasons Hotel. And he, of course, was walking through the crowded room, showing off the bottle of wine. Maybe he was bumped. Maybe he didn't see the metal topped tray just around the corner, but. went the bottle of wine and out-gushed the wine onto the ground. There were people, I read on the internet, so it must be true, there were people that were, and who can blame them, sticking their fingers into the broken bottle of wine and trying to suck a little bit of a 200-year-old million-dollar bottle of wine with their fingers. So, The funny thing about this is that even if the bottle of wine had been sold, and I think the sommelier at the Four Seasons actually said that he thought that the wine had been corked and it was ruined, so you know. But even if even if it was the best wine ever, it was the best wine ever. I can't believe it, but imagine if it really was worth a million dollars of somebody else's money. Right. So a million dollars. Oh, that is this wine is worth a million dollars of your money. Thank you for letting me have a sip. Even then, it's gone. It's gone. The best wine, even if it's not spilled on the floor of the Four Seasons Hotel in 1989, is consumed and then it's gone. You have delights, but do you control them or do they control you. Don't don't mistake me here. God wants us to enjoy the pleasures of life. He has given us all things richly to enjoy. But we do not live life as a slave of our pleasures. On the contrary, we live before God with gratitude for the pleasures that he gives us, even as we recognize that they are fleeting, that they are fleeting. Even the best pleasures do not last. So bodily pleasures, that's our first point. Our second is bold projects in verses four to eight. Now, I don't think, I'm going to be candid here, but, but I don't think I'm alone in this. We want a significance that extends beyond the pleasures that we have. We want to build something that lasts. And Solomon is no different. After reflecting on the enjoyment of bodily pleasures, he turns to bold projects. He turns to building. And verses 4 to 8 give us a sense of, as he calls them, the great works that he pursued Verse 4, he builds houses, he constructs vineyards, of course he does, given the wine. Uh, he, you know, he, he's got his houses, he has uh, vineyards. Verse 5, he has gardens and parks, so the, the houses are not just kind of on a barren landscape. It's, it's like Versailles, he's got a lot of gardens and things are really rich and plentiful. And of course, if you've got gardens and parks, you want fruit trees there, and so then... Uh, It's the picture of a rich man cultivating the land. And so if you have houses and parks and gardens and fruit trees, what do you need? You need irrigation projects. And so he has these pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. It's a rich and verdant land. And of course, he's got to have some workers Right? He's got all these palaces and houses and gardens and all these projects. And so he acquires for himself slaves. And then he gets into ranching, have some herds, some flocks. And he says, it was more than anybody else before me in Jerusalem. And not just that, verse 8. He gathers for himself silver and gold and treasure. He's accumulating vast wealth for himself. And he wants us to, be, to, to know that it's not just from anybody, right? It's the treasures that he's acquiring for himself don't come from Hobby Lobby. they the treasures of kings and provinces. And then, of course, when you've got everything in place, you want entertainment, You want male and female singers, and then he tells us he had many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Here we get a sense in a different way from the opening verses of chapter 2 that not all is well. Remember when the people want a king in 1 Samuel. Samuel warns them against a king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, he, he relents to the Lord's, by the Lord's direction. He relents to the people. But he does tell them, how will the king that you so desire get vast land holdings? Well, he'll take it from you. How will he get his flocks? Well, he'll take a tenth of yours. Who will be the king's slaves? You will be the kings, slaves, and the concubines. 1 Kings chapter 11 tells us that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And he tells us that his wives turned his heart away from the Lord. We want to control our projects But sometimes our projects can take hold of us. Sometimes we build it and it's a good thing and people come. But sometimes they don't. Consider Country Garden. Country Garden is a Chinese real estate investment firm. It built a $100 billion city in Malaysia, for 700,000 people. So bigger than Northwest Arkansas. So they took ground, they built a city for 700,000 people, took $100 billion. Guess how many people, the Wall Street Journal estimates, live in this vast city of supposed to be 700,000 people? 9,000. 9,000 people. I'm just a philosopher, not a mathematician, but that's a small percentage. <laughs> right? That's, that's not a lot. Unsurprisingly, unsurprisingly, the sticker price of $280 square feet for a one-bedroom apartment came down to $116. That's like your $300,000 Northwest Arkansas home being now valued at $120,000. Now, they, they have survived. Uh, this, this September, They have Country Garden has avoided defaulting on its debts, and we'll see whether or not the Bold Project survives. But what about you? What about me? We have Bold Projects. I don't ever dream of creating a city in Malaysia. <laughs> But we've got to recognize that our bold projects can entangle us, that our bold projects can destroy us. Solomon received wisdom and he wanted to build an empire and he got one. He got an empire. He achieved that objective. But he also acquired 1000 sexual partners who turned his heart away from The Lord. How many times, how many times do the good opportunities that the Lord gives us become occasions for us to sin against the very one who blesses us? Marriages fall apart because spouses have been given really excellent career opportunities and they're taking advantage of. The doors that the Lord has opened for them. Our children are taught that uh, school and sport is the most important thing, not Sunday school and daily Bible study. There are great projects that the Lord could have us build, but we should never do something that will take our eyes off the one who blesses us. Let's dream big dreams. And ask God to bless us. But let's not make our bold projects occasions for temptation and for ruin. Instead, let's serve God for his glory. Bold projects. So bold bodily pleasures, bold projects. And finally, in verses 9 to 11, barren pursuits. Barren pursuits. In verses 9 to 11, Solomon starts by comparing himself with others, he says in verse nine, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Now, is this arrogance on his part? No, I don't think so. Not at all. After all, Solomon built his palace. He built the Lord's own temple. If you wanted to go back in time to see Jerusalem in all its glory, then he would go back to the reign of King Solomon. Even still, not all is well. Though he has become great, his building projects have gone well, his wisdom, he says, remained with him. And though he um, kept his heart from no pleasure, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And though he finds, I thought I think this is delicious, he finds pleasure in his toil. Right? Some of us have uh, the, the blessing of God that we love to do what we have the privilege of doing. I love to do what I have the privilege of doing. And it is a great blessing. And so there's reward in the toil that he has, not simply because his building projects are successful, but also it's a source of great delight and satisfaction to him. And yet, verse 11 I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You can grow your own grapes and your own vineyard and make your own wine, but the wine can taste like emptiness." Perhaps nothing more clearly demonstrates to us how empty our pursuits are, how barren our projects are, than actually succeeding in them. You see, as long as we're not succeeding in them, we think, well, when I do that, I'll be happy and fulfilled. I will be a success. Consider the following people, and I want you to think What do they all have in common? Tony Scott directed Top Gun and Crimson Tide amongst other Hollywood blockbusters. Dave Duerson won a Super Bowl with the Chicago Bears, and then he won another Super Bowl with the New York Giants. Chesley Crist was 2019 Miss USA. Naomi Judd was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame along with her sister. Alan Garcia was president of Peru. They were all successful. If you want to go into Hollywood, you want to make a blockbuster film. If you're a politician, you want victory at the polls. If you are an athlete, then if you're a football player, you want to win the Super Bowl. But what do all of these people have in common alongside their success in their various fields? They all died by suicide. Verse 2. It's mad. It's mad, this pleasure. What use is it? Verse 11, vanity and a striving after wind. There's nothing to be gained. I think that Christians are often accused of being Pollyannas, that we don't take the world seriously enough. And Ecclesiastes is a good answer to people's glib and ignorant assessment of Christianity. When we look at all the projects that we have, the fleetingness of life's pleasure, the fleetingness of our many projects, I think that there are three possible outlooks. One, despair. Two, resignation. Three, humility. Let's consider each one. First, despair, right? Uh, Comparisons elevate us. Oh, well, I was faster than that kid. But they also, I mean, I never said that, but some of you did. Some of you did. I, you know, I never said but some of you did. Some of you were fast. But then what happens? You, you run against people who are faster. You're smart. And there are other people who are smarter. You're, you talk well, but then there's someone else next to whom you feel like a country rube. Right? And so you're plunged into despair. And then you think about your work it's not going to last i was th- i was thinking about this you know the the covenant church fayetteville like if the lord tarries and it's 10,000 years from now they could there could be an archaeological dig of this building right they they could they could say this here's where paul sagan actually put his eyeglasses right i mean they, they could you know here, I, I lost a pocket knife. If, if, if an archaeologist somewhere like, finds a pocket knife, it's like they were warriors. I mean, not me, but I had a pocket knife. So, so the, but it's just despairing, right? Um, but then, of course, what's even more sobering, and if you're not a Christian this morning, then it's something you always keep out of your mind, which is even if, even if I write a book, and a thousand years from now, it's unlikely, but if a thousand years from now, people are writing my book, they're reading my book. What happened to me? I'm gone. I'm reminded of uh, Woody Allen when he was told, um, you'll live on in your films. He said, I'd rather keep living on in my apartment. Right. <laughs> we should, it should we should plan if you, you should say it's all going to end and I'm going to end despair. That's option one. Now, option two is resignation, right? We can toughen up like the Stoics. I love teaching Epictetus in the Enchiridion. The J. Bruce version of it is, um, if you do not get what you desire, then desire what you get, right? So so maybe you are not a Christian this morning and you say, ah, I'm not despairing. Why? Because I'm soldiering on. Well, I think that there are two problems with this view. I, I see this in Ronald Dworkin. Um, he was a legal philosopher, and he published a book. Uh, it was Actually, the, the book was published posthumously called Religion Without God. And Dworkin said, you know, we atheists, we kind of have an immortality because even if our stuff, even if our work doesn't last forever, it's, it's worth just having an existence if only for a moment. And this sounds kind of nice, but it's really just romantic dribble, right? Because the idea is, Jay, you're going to flourish like a flower and then die, or you're going to be a bird and then you're going to die. But that's okay, because you look and you go, oh, isn't that a pretty flower? Isn't that a pretty bird? But the, the first is, it's just dehumanizing, right? Really? That's what I am? I'm a $5 flower? I mean, I may not even be a fly- like I was thinking about rose prices, like $5, $6, $7 a rose, but... but but that so it's dehumanizing. Right. That's all I am is a flower. I thought I was a human. I thought I was a person. I thought I was made I, for better things. I thought I was more for that. But then also there's a kind of romantic blind. That's the first point. The second is there's a kind of romantic blindness on assuming that, you know, if I was a bird, I'd be a cardinal or a nuthatch. <laughs> why not a skunk? Right. Why not a skunk? If I was a flower, I'd be a rose. Well, why not a thorn? Right? Why not a thorn? There, there ought to be a sober mindedness about assessing our lives, the full orbed view of who we are as people that should provoke despair. But mercifully, that's not the only option. There is humility. Option three, humility. Yes. I am small. But I am deeply loved. The scope of my projects is minuscule. But I serve a great king. No one may read J. Bruce's writings. But my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. I may not be on the short list oh I know I'm not on the short list to fancy dinners in northwest Arkansas but I get to come back this evening and partake of the Lord's Supper of the feast of my King Jesus it's true that I could lose my job or lose my house but one day I will hear the Lord say to me Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. Not, oh, you've been faithful over a lot. No, no, Jay, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Friends, that's where we are headed. Let's conclude. If you're a Christian this morning then honor the Lord with your your service. Be, Be competent, be faithful, be industrious in whatever He has given you to do. If you do things that are considered great by the world, and I imagine some of you do, then be humble. It is the Lord and His providence who's blessed you with both the skill, ability, and opportunity to do those things. But if you consider yourself neglected, then take comfort because the God of the whole universe knows you by name. He's numbered the hairs of your head, and he looks on you with joy and affection. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, that I encourage you to sober-mindedly reflect on Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, to consider whether the bodily pleasures that you pursue are ultimately satisfying You know, they're not whether the bold projects that you're engaged in will give you a lasting legacy when you know that they won't. And instead to humble yourself before the one who made you, who even now is calling you to himself in his gracious love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we are not valued for what we have done. In fact, you love us in spite of all the wrong that we have done. And we pray that we, we would yield ourselves to you, the one who loves us and who gave his son for us. And it's in the strong name of the Lord Jesus that we pray. Amen.